Masonnier's friends, the writer Alexandre Dumas-Fils, called him the painter of France. He was simply, as a newspaper breathlessly reported, the most renowned artist of our time. The Grand Maison included not one, but most unusually, two large studios in which Maisonnier could paint his masterpieces. The Atelier d'Hiver, or winter workshop, featuring bay windows and a large fireplace, was on the top floor of the house. While at ground level, overlooking the garden, he had built a glass-roofed annex known as the Atelier d'Ete, or summer workshop. Both abounded with the tools of his trade, canvases, brushes and easels, but also musical instruments, suits of armour, bridles and harnesses, plumed helmets and an assortment of halberds, rapiers and muskets, enough weaponry, it was said, to equip a company of mercenaries. For Messonnier's paintings were, like his house, recherché figments of an antiquarian imagination. He specialised in scenes from 17th and 18th century life, portraying an ever-growing cast of silk-coated and laced-rough gentlemen, what he called his bonhommes, or good fellows, playing chess, smoking pipes, reading books, sitting before easels or double bases, or posing in the uniforms of musketeers or halberdiers. These musicians and bookworms striking their quiet and reflective poses in serene, softly lit interiors, all executed in microscopic detail, bore uncanny similarities to the work of Jan Vermeer, an artist whose rediscovery in the 1860s owed much to the ravenous taste for Maisonnier, and one whose tremendous current popularity approaches the enthusiastic esteem in which Maisonnier himself was held in mid-19th century France. Typical of Maisonnier's work was one of his most recent creations, Halt at an Inn, owned by the Duc de Morny, a wealthy art collector and the illegitimate half-brother of the French emperor, Napoleon III. Completed in 1862, it featured three 18th-century cavaliers in tricorn hats being served drinks on horseback outside a half-timbered rural tavern a charming vignette of the days of old, without a railway train or top hat in sight. Maisonnier's most famous painting, though, was The Brawl, a somewhat less decorous scene depicting a sword fight in a tavern between two men dressed, as usual, in opulent 18th-century attire. Awarded the Grand Medal of Honour at the Salon of 1855, it was owned by Queen Victoria, whose husband and consort, Prince Albert, had prized Maisonnier above all other artists. At the height of the Crimean War, Napoleon III had purchased the work from Maisonnier for 25,000 francs, eight times the annual salary of an average factory worker, and presented it as a gift to his ally across the Channel. If I had not been a painter, Maisonnier once declared, I should have liked to be a historian. I don't think any other subject could be so interesting as history. He was not alone in his veneration of the past. The mid-19th century was an age of rapid technological development that had witnessed the invention of photography, the electric motor, and the steam-powered locomotive. Yet, it was also an age fascinated by and obsessed with the past. The novelist, Gustave Flaubert, regarded this keen sense of history as a completely new phenomenon, as yet another of the century's many bold inventions. The historical sense dates from only yesterday, he wrote to a friend in 1860 and it is perhaps one of the 19th century's finest achievements. Visions of the past were everywhere in France. Fashions at the court of Napoleon III 
aped those previous centuries with men wearing bicorn hats, knee breeches, and silk stockings. The country's best-known architect, Eugène Emmanuel Viollet le Duc, had spent his career busily returning old churches and cathedrals to their medieval splendor. By 1863, he was creating a fairy tale castle for the emperor at Pierrefonds, a knight in armor reverie of portcullises, round towers, and cobbled courtyards. Still, the subject matter of Maisonnier's works accounted only partly for their extraordinary success. What astounded the critics and the public alike was his mastery of fine detail and almost inconceivably punctilious craftsmanship. It is impossible to comprehend that our clumsy hands could achieve such a degree of delicacy, enthused Gautier. Maisonnier's paintings, most of which were small in size, rewarded the closest and most prolonged observation. After purchasing one of his works, the English art critic John Ruskin would examine it at length under a magnifying glass, marvelling at Maisonnier's manual dexterity and eye for fascinating minutiae. A critic once joked that Maisonnier was capable of putting the profits of the Sistine Chapel on the setting of a ring. No one in the history of art, it was said, ever possessed such a superlative and unerring touch with his brush. The finest Flemish painters, the most meticulous Dutch, claimed Gautier, are slovenly and heavy next to Maisonnier. Despite his great success, Maisonnier was not, however, immune to criticism. By 1863, an undertone of murmuring had begun to accompany his seemingly endless parade of chess players and musketeers. The art critic, Paul de Saint-Victor, had bemoaned this seemingly limited repertoire, complaining that Maisonnier's bonhommes, however well executed, did little more than read, write, and puff their pipes. Another critic, Paul Mance, inquired, would it be too demanding to ask this talented artist to renew his choice of subjects a little? Most critical of all, though, was Maisonnier himself. His minute paintings of 18th-century officers and gentlemen may have brought him wealth and fame, but for all of that, he claimed to despise them as beneath his talents. Nothing can express adequately my horror at going about making bonhomme for a living, he declared. These elegant little paintings were not, he insisted, the true expression of his genius. Posterity would celebrate him, he believed, for something quite different. An artist cannot be hampered by family cares, Maisonnier once wrote. He must be free, able to devote himself entirely to his work. Yet Maisonnier seemed always to have been hampered by family cares. His father, Charles, had been a successful businessman, the proprietor of a factory in Saint-Denis, north of Paris, that produced dyes for the textile industry. Though possessed of an artistic temperament, he played the flute, sang ballads, and danced the quadrille at parties, Charles Maisonnier did not contemplate with enthusiasm the prospect of a painter in the family. He was a strict, practical man who subscribed to the theory that children should be toughened up by means of exposure to the cold, and, not unnaturally, he expected Ernest, the eldest of his two sons, to follow him into the dye business. When young Ernest indicated his distaste for such a career, relations between father and son deteriorated, all the more so after Madame Messonnier died and Charles had a liaison and subsequently a daughter with a laundress whom he duly married. Ernest was then sent, aged 17, to work in a druggist shop in the Rue des Lombards. His days were spent preparing bandages and sweeping the floor, while at night he sketched in secret and dreamed of launching his artistic career. 
Only a dogged show of determination and a threat to run away to Naples convinced Charles Massonnier to apprentice his son to Léon Cognier, a well-known history painter who had studied in Rome and received important public commissions, such as a mural for the ceiling of a gallery in the Louvre. Messonnier had proved a precocious talent. A fellow artist later observed that he seemed to have been born a master, free from the clumsiness and uncertainty that marked the early careers of other artists. The talented young Messonnier set his sights high, aiming to become a history painter, like Cognier, who had first made his name in 1817 with a Sandland toga scene entitled Helen Delivered by Her Brothers, Castor and Pollux. The depiction of these grand historical scenes was believed to be the most noble task a painter could set for himself in the 19th century. History painting occupied the summit in the strict hierarchy endorsed by the Académie des Beaux-Arts, the prestigious institution charged with shaping the destiny of French art. Landscapes, portraits and still lives were all thought inferior because unlike history paintings, they could not impart moral precepts to the spectator and the teaching of moral lessons was, for most members of the Academy, the whole point of a work of art. The ideal painting, according to this wisdom, was one in which well-known characters from the Bible, national history, or classical mythology performed heroic deeds and, in so doing, provided cogent moral inspiration for the viewers. One of the most celebrated examples was Jacques-Louis David's The Oath of the Horatii, painted in Rome in 1784, a thirteen-foot-wide canvas featuring a band of toga-clad brothers pledging an oath to their father to defend Rome against its enemies. The young Maisonnier had begun a number of these high-minded paintings, including The Siege of Calais and Peter the Hermit Preaching the Crusade, works that were intended, he later wrote, to express great thoughts, devotion, noble examples.